1: Well, we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Last week we went through verses 1 through 4, and today we're going to try to get through verse 11. And the whole emphasis of this chapter is the resurrection. If you are a Christian, and you've been to church more than once or twice, if you're a Christian at all, you know the truth of the resurrection. The Corinthians knew the truth of the resurrection, But it isn't the information, the knowledge that stills the soul for the Christian. It's the reality of the truth of the resurrection. We're going to live in the information or we're going to live in the truth of it. What I'm going to say to you tonight concerning the gospel, concerning the resurrection, is not going to be anything that you haven't heard before if you've been to church a couple times. But I would like you to ask the Spirit of God to be your teacher tonight. Because he can take one word and make it a life-changing word for you. Not your life needs to be changed, but perhaps the reality of your life needs to be changed. The truth of your life needs to be refocused. If you uh, look at the Bible, you probably get the idea that it is in chronological order. And unless you have a chronological Bible, you wouldn't know the difference. The truth is, your Bible is not in chronological order. It is arranged according to the progression of God's covenant with man. And though there is some confusion concerning the beginning of the New Testament, there are some differences in terms of the time it actually happened and the time it's actually arranged in this book. A classic example is 1 Corinthians 1 Corinthians was actually written 20 years after the resurrection. It was written before the Gospel of Luke and some 40 years ahead of the Gospel of John. It's possibly the first written defense of the resurrection. So what's going on here is Paul is bringing evidence of the resurrection before the believers in Corinth, much in the same way an attorney would bring evidence Before a court of law. And last week again we looked at verses 1 through 4. I'm going to read for you verses 1 through 5 in order for us to have context. In verse 1 of chapter 15 Paul writes that he wants to remind the Corinthian believers of the gospel. He writes, and now let me remind you since it seems to have escaped you brethren of the gospel. The glad tidings of salvation which I proclaim to you, which you welcomed and accepted upon which your faith rests. Now, I do not believe that these believers had, in fact, wholly forgotten the gospel, but I think they've been distracted from the truth of it. Sometimes familiarity can not breed necessarily contempt, but can take away from the reality they were familiar with the fact of the, of the gospel, but they had gotten distracted from the truth of it. In particular, the truth of the resurrection. The grace that they were baptized in, that's what the resurrection is. The grace in which you were baptized in. You can't separate the resurrection from grace, because grace is the resurrection. I want you to keep that in the forefront of your mind as we go through this. The resurrection is essential to the whole of the gospel. In Romans 10, 9, he writes, Because if you acknowledge and confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord, and in your heart believe, adhere to, trust in, and rely on the truth, that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So... We must believe in the resurrection in order to be saved. It is essential to our salvation to understand that we were raised with him. It's essential to our salvation to understand that we were raised into newness of life. It is not essential to our salvation just to know that Jesus was raised from the dead. Did you know that? Now what I mean by that is you can know that Jesus was raised from the dead and not be saved. What is essential is to know that he was raised from the dead with your life. That he gave you life in his resurrection. Because if you don't understand that, all you really have embraced is the fact that he died so that your sins would be forgiven. But you don't recognize that he died that you might have life and have it to the full. John eleven twenty five says, Jesus said to her, I am myself, the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in, adheres to, trusts in and relies on me. Although he may die, yet he shall live. So God doesn't define life by the body. Most of us have figured that out. God doesn't define life by the body. We must have been resurrected with him before we can have life in him. And we have to have life. If you have resurrection life, you no longer define life by the body. You define life by the eternal life of Christ. So guess what? You have everlasting life. When you say somebody lost their life, if you say that about a Christian, you'd be wrong. A Christian never loses their life. They might lose their body. We are all at some point going to lay this body down, but they'll never lose their life. You no longer define life by the body. The body has a life in it that we try to protect. But resurrection life doesn't need any protection. It is free from death and captivity. It exists by the life of God. It is the testimony of God's power to bring life from death. It is the living witness of grace. The resurrection is our greatest demonstration of grace. That we are not just forgiven, but we are made new. Not just changed, but born anew. Resurrected into newness of life. This life we now live is the greatest exhibition of God's love and grace. That God would take what was vile, what hated him, and make it his own. Literally recreate it. The resurrection took us from a living death to an everlasting glorious intimacy with our God. That's the coolest part of it, isn't it? That he took us from this sense of separation, living like God was out there somewhere, and maybe touched our lives from time to time, maybe got involved here and there. We've always prayed to him during the tough things. It took us from that sense of distance, that cordial relationship that we might have had, or it took us from a a relationship that was literally antagonistic to him and he recreated us through resurrection life through Christ's life he brought us up into intimacy with himself and now because of that act because of resurrection life we no longer live in this touch and go relationship unless we allow our soul to reject the truth of his resurrection life in us. That's easy to do. Why? Because the accuser is always accusing in a voice that sounds very much like your own. In words that sound very much like your thoughts. And he says to you, Well, you know, you haven't I haven't spoken to God all afternoon. He must you know, I really wanted to, to, to commune with him today. I really wanted to speak with him. I wanted to walk closely with him today. And I haven't talked to him all afternoon. I've been so distracted. Father, I'm so sorry. I don't know how you put up with me. There is nothing true in what I just said. Every bit of it was a lie. It was based in an emotional perception in the soul. It was not based in truth. You are communing with God right now. Now, you may not recognize it, but you're doing it. He never left you. He has been speaking into your life moment by moment. And you know what's glorious about this intimacy that we have because of resurrection life? Is that we don't have to create it. It's done. We just pick it up like it's there and it is. And you know what? We can tell the enemy, I know who's speaking here and it's not God and it's not me. And it's not life, and it is not light, and it is not liberty. And God says, whatsoever things are good and wholesome and perfect. Did that sound anything like that? No. It was accusatory. It was full of guilt and fear and doubt. Resurrection life put an end to all of that. You can have it by recognizing that you do. Isn't that cool? that when the Christian loses the truth of resurrection life, they find themselves defining life by the body. And then they will live in the fear of death. When you define life by the body, you live in the fear of death. You live in the fear of the aches and the pains. You live in the fear of growing old. You live in the fear of what's going to happen to the body, how are you going to protect the body. And you move from captivity to to captivity. If you define life by the body, you move from captivity to captivity because the body is captive. But if you define life by Christ, you're never held captive. And the body is a vessel that is free. The Bible calls it a tool unto righteousness. You know what that means? It's something that the true you, the spiritual you who is in union with God, picks up and manipulates in order to go forward in truth. It is a manifestation of God. I know you look in the mirror and you don't see that, but I'm not talking about the way you look. I'm talking about the truth that God speaks through your mouth, the love that he demonstrates through your hug and through your prayers. I'm talking about everything that he does through that instrument the Corinthians had become blind to who they were. And when you live life according to the body, you become blind to who you are and the grace that your new life has forged about you. So you see why it's so important for these Corinthians to embrace the whole gospel and to live to the truth of the resurrection? Because as we discussed last week, the Corinthian believers have begun to embrace a heresy that would accept Jesus, res- Jesus' resurrection, but denied that anyone else would be resurrected. So what Paul does is he begins by proving the resurrection of Christ. Why? Because they're in Christ. And because of what I know about Christ, I know about me. Do you know that? The best way for you to get to know yourself is to get to know him. I'm not saying you're Jesus. I'm saying he is your life. If you believe something about yourself that's contrary to the truth of who Christ is, you've been deceived. I'm not saying you didn't make a mistake. I'm not saying you haven't failed. I'm not saying you haven't been living contrary to the truth. But I'm telling you that that is not who you are. So I'm going to read verses 1 through 5 in order for us to keep in context. Here it is. And Paul writes, And now let me remind you, since it seems to have escaped you, brethren, of the gospel, the glad tidings of salvation which I proclaim to you, which you welcomed and accepted and upon which your faith rests, and by which you are saved, if you hold fast and keep firmly what I preach to you, unless you believed at first without effect and all for nothing. For I passed on to you, first of all, what I also had received, that Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, died for our sins in accordance with what the Scriptures foretold. That he was buried, that he rose on the third day, as the Scriptures foretold. And also, verse 5, that he appeared to Cephas, Peter, then to the twelve. So, Paul has just made the gospel plain in verses 3 and 4. He references the Old Testament scripture to give evidence that Christ's death and resurrection was completely in line with prophecy. So, Paul is presenting the prophecy of the Old Testament as evidence. Now, the Jews embraced Old Testament prophecy, but they had rejected the Messiah. Now, in verse 5, Paul brings in his first eyewitness, Cephas, Peter. Jesus appeared to to Peter first. Why is that? Why would Jesus appear to Peter first? To restore him. You see, Peter had denied him. In anger, Peter swore three times that he did not know Jesus. So Jesus comes to Peter, the shamed, the failure. And Jesus resurrects the relationship. I wonder, do you think a pulpit committee would have looked at Peter as a potential preacher or church leader? I don't think so. In Peter's mind, he deserved rejection and punishment for his failure. So he expected to be treated according to what he deserved. But Jesus never treats us according to what we deserve. He treats us according to what he created us to be. What he created us to be. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. How's Jesus treating you? He never expected to be close to Jesus again. He never expected to minister in that name again. Even when Peter is told to wait for Jesus in Galilee, he gave up and decided to return to fishing. Peter would have cast himself away as a disciple. He sat there waiting for Jesus in the proposed place in Galilee, and when it got a little long, he immediately... The whole time he's there, he's thinking, I rejected Jesus. I rejected him. I denied him. He's going to, he is going to reject me. I denied him. I don't deserve this. All of these things have got to be going through his mind. If not through his mind, through his emotions. And at some point, Peter says, you know what, guys? Enough of this. He's not coming. I'm going fishing. It's the one thing I know how to do. Have you ever done that? I give up. I'm just going to do what I know to do. I'm just going to leave. I'm not going to spend time with him because he's going to reject me. He's not talking to me because he rejected me. I'm going to go do what I know how to do. So Peter, him, and some of the other apostles head out to to the water to go fishing. And Jesus finds him there. Jesus finds Peter living in disobedience and unbelief. And there Jesus embraces him. And he provokes Peter to declare his love. I love that. And I've heard it preached a thousand ways, but I'm going to give you the Todd Granger amplified version. Okay? This is how I see it emotionally. Peter's standing there in all of his rejection. Peter's standing there in all of his failure and all of the things that he swore he never do, he did. Coupled by the guilt of not being where he was supposed to be. And Jesus embraces him. He sees Jesus and he runs to him. And Jesus embraces him. And Jesus feeds them, nurtures them. And then he calls Peter to the side. And all those I can see, I can, you can feel all the guilt and fear welling up in him. And he looks at Peter and he says, do you love me? Peter, well, I denied him. I was disobedient. I ran. Well, I don't know. Peter, do you love me? Yes, I love you. Say it. Yes, I love you. Feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Well, I'm not. I'm a failure, you know. I've tried so hard, but I can't maintain it. I, d- I don't know how I could be the Christian that I should be. I don't know how I could be the faithful follower that I should be. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Say it. Yes, Lord, I love you. Feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Oh, gosh, Lord, you know everything. You know my heart. You know that I love you. Say it. Yes, Lord. I love you. He provokes Peter to declare the truth. Not his guilt. Not his fear. Not all of the things that he'd done wrong. But the truth of his heart. Jesus looks straight to him. And what Jesus sees is not the the self-willed Peter, full of his own determination and fear, but he sees the Peter he created him to be. And he says to him, feed my sheep. And I'm sure Peter at that point says, I'm sure the thoughts came to his mind as, as, as the truth began to wrap itself around his soul. And he says, but wait a minute, how can I declare the truth when I denied you in the garden, in the courtyard? How can I declare the truth when I can't even be obedient? Do you love me? You see what the qualifications are? Do you see the qualifications for living out the gospel? Do you see the qualifications for living out the ministry of Christ? Do you see the qualifications for being all that God has called you to be? Do you see what they are? Do you love me? Yes, Lord. You know that I love you. Feed my sheep. On that day, Peter embraced him, ate with him, and was charged by him. What grace! What unbelievable grace! He didn't have to look Jesus up. He didn't have to figure out his approach. He didn't have to word his apology. Jesus came to him and brought resurrection life to Peter. Jesus also appeared to others. All who had walked with him in his ministry, those who would be declaring the truth. And you know what? Those who would miss him most. But every one of them, he came to them and they saw him. And in some cases, actually touched the resurrected Lord. And as I pointed out earlier, this book was written 20 years after the resurrection. So many of these witnesses were still alive, for sure. John and uh, Peter and John were, because they wrote their portion of Scripture after this portion was written. Look at uh, verse 6. Then he later showed himself to more than 500 brethren at one time, the majority of whom are still alive, but some have fallen asleep in death. Now, we don't know how many of them actually were still living, but it says the majority, right? And then verse 7. And afterwards, he was seen by James... Then, by all the apostles, the special messengers. Now, many Bible scholars believe that Paul is referring to James, the brother of Jesus. Why? Because he's mentioned apart from the apostles. Now, James and Jesus, James was actually Jesus' older brother. And James and the other brother had refused to believe in Jesus as the Messiah. It's written in John verse, uh, chapter 7, verse 5. For even his brothers did not believe in or adhere to or trust in or rely on him. Now, both James and Peter had betrayed Jesus. Yet Paul names them as witnesses of the resurrection. James saw the resurrected Christ and believed. And guess what? He became the leader of the leader of the church in Jerusalem. Neither of these men, prior to seeing the resurrected Jesus, would have risked their lives to declare Jesus as the risen Lord. Yet both were called to be leaders in the church. What grace, what unbelievable grace to bring life from death. Jesus brought James' resurrection life. Now, Paul references the last and least likely witness of them all. Look at verse 8. And last of all, he appeared to me also as to one prematurely and born dead, no better than an unperfected fetus among living men. Can you imagine anything that would be less able to affect the world? Something that didn't even have strength to begin with. Something that never had life to any great degree. Paul was a persecutor of the church who hated Jesus so much they dedicated his life to killing anyone who would believe in him. Yet Jesus came for him. On the Damascus road to Damascus, Paul met the resurrected Lord and he became the Apostle Paul. The man whom God chose to pen the truth of the new covenant and with the greatest church builder in Bible. What grace. He says in verse 9, he says, For I am the least worthy of the apostles who am not fit or deserving to be called an apostle. Because I once wronged and pursued and molested the church of God, oppressed it with cruelty and violence. Paul is giving testimony to the grace that was afforded him through the resurrection life of Christ. Paul is saying, because of who I was and what I did, I am least worthy of this grace. Paul knows that none are worthy, save Christ himself. But he's standing shoulder to shoulder with those who were granted such grace as to be able to meet the resurrected Christ in person. And he says, I was the least worthy to meet the resurrected Christ. Least deserving. Look at verse 10. But by the grace, the unmerited favor and blessing of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not found to be for nothing, fruitless and without effect. In fact, I worked harder than all of them, the apostles, though it was not really... I, but the grace, the unmerited favor and blessing of God which was with me, but by grace.
0: Thank you for joining us for His Life Revealed with Pastor Todd Granger. This program is the radio ministry of His Life Fellowship in San Antonio, Texas. If you'd like to know more about us, visit us on the web at hislifeministries.org. 78006.